Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. I am blessed to be in conversation today with Francine Lazarus. We will be discussing her book and memoir, A Hidden Jewish Child from Belgium, Survivor Scars and Healing, published in London by Valentine Mitchell, 2017. Francine, I'm tremendously lucky to have this opportunity to talk with you today. Thank you. I think it's my honor. Thank you. It's it's certainly a blessing. Thank you. To begin, kindly tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired you to write this memoir? Well, I am I'm a Holocaust survivor. I was born in Belgium in 1938, the day of the Anschluss. The Anschluss being the um, uh, annexation of Austria by the Nazi regime. And so it wasn't a very auspicious day to be born, but, uh, uh, you know, I wasn't aware of what was happening being a baby. And a lot of the things that I'm telling people, which happened at that stage, uh, my brother has told me because it's obvious that I don't remember until my fourth birthday when I started remembering because that was very traumatic in 1942. But the Nazis invaded Belgium, the low countries, Holland, Belgium and France. They came that way despite the French having built the Maginot Line to keep the Germans out, Um, but they had the guns pointing the wrong way. And the Nazis came with their blitzkrieg and invaded Belgium on the 10th of May, 1940. And uh, we tried to run away because the war didn't start in Belgium. By then, the war had been going on for two years. And so Poland, Czechoslovakia, um, Poland, areas, the Sudetenland, and had been taken already. And the treatment of the Jews was very much um, horrid. And the people who managed to escape, who came towards the West and who arrived in Belgium, were telling the most horrendous stories. So as soon as the Nazis invaded Belgium, every many people tried to run away. And so the the roads were clogged with 
bicycles, horses, cars that had broken down because they couldn't get the fuel. And uh, my father managed to get some uh, tickets to, for a train to take us to Dunkirk. And from there, he had hoped that we'd be able to travel to England. However, when we reached Dunkirk, it had been close to the general population and uh, only reserved for the military. And so we went around France and uh, tried the Swiss border, but they repelled us. And we ended up in a little place called Sepet in France. And we were there for several months until Maréchal Pétain, who was in charge of the Free France, so-called Free France, uh, had an ed um, published an edict that all the Jews who had come to France um, could have a choice of being interned in a place called Gurs, G-U-R-S, or um, return to the place that the country that they'd come from. And my father decided for us to, to go back. What I didn't tell you was that whilst we were in, in France, we tried to get, pay people smugglers to take us across the Pyrenees to Spain, which was another way of getting to England where we thought we'd be safe. But apparently I had whooping cough. And mm. all this, of course, I don't remember, but my brother told me. So we were left behind. The group left and managed to safely cross the Pyrenees, but we couldn't. So uh, my father made the decision after the edict from Marie-Charpetain to go back to Belgium. And it was a good decision because a very, very incredibly high percentage of people who were interned in girls were murdered in Auschwitz subsequently as soon as the death factory was in action. So it was a very good decision and we went back to Belgium. But of course, meanwhile, Belgium had horrible edicts put against the Jewish population. Um, they were excluded from academia, excluded from medicine, excluded from the law excluded from every uh, education, every from every uh, aspects of living. And they couldn't make a, a they couldn't sell to non-Jews and non-Jews were not allowed to buy from them. So they couldn't own property, the, the, they couldn't travel, there was curfew imposed, they couldn't travel on public transport, they couldn't go use any of the, the park and the public facilities. Jews were excluded on on the sole basis that people were Jewish for no other reason. So by 1942, when the death factories were functioning very well, the Nazis had already ordered all the Jews to move into three main cities, of which Brussels was one of them. And they formed a triangle over um, uh, a city called Malin or Mechelen. Um, Malin had had a um, Belgian garrison there. And so that was fitting very, very well with the Nazi purpose. 
And by 1942, the roundup started because the Jews had been concentrated and it was very easy to pick them up, to go to certain street and to, to drag them, whether they were full family, without, with suitcase, with no suitcase, with a complete family. It, it was just the, uh, uh, very uh, unorganized organization. And so they, they blocked off street with trucks and forced the people to go down, regardless of whether the kids were home, mum was not there, dad was trying to, to find some food. There was no organization in it. And whereas in some countries they were told to present themselves at this and this time with a suitcase and, and all their valuables, the Nazis had been smartened by the time they came to Belgium because there was a register of, and people had to register. If you did not register, you wouldn't get coupons to buy food. Now, coupons is not money. Coupons is an authority to walk into a shop and buy a loaf of bread with your own money. But you had to have both the coupon and the money. If you didn't have... Uh, the coupons, you couldn't walk into the bakery or the butcher shop or whatever it was. So, and to get the coupons, you had to go and register. Later on, a lot of coupons were illegally printed in underground uh, uh, printer areas, but um, that was much later. So a lot of people went and registered, and what the Nazis asked was, how many rooms do you have? How many people the family comprises of? Do you have silverware? Do you have gold? Declare your uh, how many rugs you have? Do you have the paintings? Do you list them? So by the time you'd listed everything, you've already made a um, a plan for them to send you to to the to the east to your death, and just march in, and they had the detail of everything of any value to take. So it was very, very well organized. By 1942, as I said, the, the roundups were started in earnest. And of course, everybody was scrambling to find hiding places. Unlike the story of Anne Frank, where the whole family was hidden together, um, my family was completely divided. My father found a place in a place called Sant near Tubis, which is a small town, not very far from Brussels. And he took me there and it was a little farm. Now, a farm where I'm living in Australia is uh, uh, 5,000 head of cattle and uh, 20,000 head of sheep and um millions of uh, trees and you know things are, are grown in large quantities whereas in Belgium at the at that time it was um a self-sufficient little holding of uh, maybe one or two acres you know we grew our own vegetables we grew our own fruit we had our chickens we had a couple of cows we had a horse and um, a couple of pigs. And my father 
he did not say goodbye. And that is why I remember it because it was extremely traumatic. When I realized he wasn't there and I was left with total strangers in a completely different environment to the to the environment that I had been used to, which was the city with cars honking, with traffic, with noise, with lots of people, to a very quiet environment with two couples, uh, an old couple and their son and daughter, uh, their, rather their daughter and uh, son-in-law, and all these animals, strange animals to me, because, you know, we'd had a cat at home, but that was it. And so, um, and my father didn't say goodbye. He left surreptitiously and abandoned me, or so I felt. And for the rest of my life, I have felt abandoned whenever anybody has gone away or um, any change. I'm very um, uh, averse to change of any kind. But... That's why from that time onwards, I remember, whereas anything that I, I have told you so far, I, this information I received from my brother, who's seven years older than me. My brother was uh, sent to a Jesuit seminary and um, where they tried to, of course, convert him. And nobody knew where the parents were. As it turned out, I found out later on that they were living in a place under under a grenier, I don't know how to say in English, an attic. And um, so, you know, I, I, I did see my father once more when he came to visit me in the farm, probably. I don't know how he traveled because... He wasn't allowed on public transport. He had to observe the curfew. How he came or is, is all a mystery to me. And he had a Star of David, which would have made him very obvious. I don't know whether he came to pay for my board or what, what, why he came, but he came and again left surreptitiously. At that stage, I'd forgotten my mother. I'd forgotten that I had a mother. I didn't miss my mother. Um, you know, little children are very forgetful and very uh, adaptable. And, and um, so I was very lucky compared to the other children that were taken. First of all, um, I was kept isolated, so I never mixed up with any of the other children in the village. The, because the reason that the farmers gave to the neighbours was that, and the neighbours were far away, so nobody was adjacent to us. But the story that went around was that I had TB, tuberculosis, and of course um, I came to the country to get better, and that I was a cousin, cousin of theirs from the city. And so, of course, tuberculosis being highly contagious everybody stayed away from me we we did go to, to church every single day and you might think that's a little bit excessive but uh, the reason was not because these people were so highly religious but when the nazis marched into a city or town or village or country 
first one, one of the first edicts was to confiscate all the radios. And at those stage there were no television, there were only only radios and confiscating the radios stop anybody from getting information from from Radio London, which was uh, vital to the uh, resistance people. And but a few radios had been hidden and kept and managed to, and so the all the information was passed on through the church, and so everybody went to confession at a regular date and. And in the confessional, instead of uh, asking for forgiveness, they got all the their orders and information and and what to do and where to do it and where they could find the ammunition to do do it. Whilst uh, I stayed away, far away from the other children, and so it it was a good time and a bad time. Good in the fact that I had food and I had fresh air, and unlike some kids who were starving. On the other hand, I was extremely lonely and I was missing my family. I was missing a hug, a cuddle, a kiss. Uh, so I didn't realise it at the time, but I became absolutely intractable and nasty and a horrible child. But... Um, the only way I could get attention was being naughty and being told off. So I was striving for attention. Anyway, after I'd been, and I worked out um, how long I'd been in sand from this following incident. One day, our farm was isolated, so there was no traffic as a rule. One day, two trucks lumbered up the hill and stopped in front of our farm. In the and out came men in uniform, men without uniform, dogs, a lot of noise, screaming. The noise was terrible, and a lot of people coming and making a terrible upheaval. And all of a sudden, in our courtyard, in the courtyard of the farm, there were three haystacks. Now, you, you can travel the world and not see any unless you go to the Musée d'Orsay and see them on on some of uh, Manet, Manet or Monet, I'm not sure. Somebody painted some haystacks, and I'm not sure who, I can't remember offhand. But we had haystacks, three haystacks, that I had never played, I didn't even realize that they were hollow in any way. I just thought they were, the hay had been gathered. These days they don't have haystacks because the hay, the hay is baled to keep for animals. But in those days they were still building haystacks. And all of a sudden I felt Catherine grab me, grab me from the back, put a hand in front of my mouth so I wouldn't scream, and pushed me into one of the haystacks. And the haystack was hollow. I hadn't realized that it was hollow. And it wasn't completely opaque because the straw, is, through the straw is visible what's going on. It's not extremely clear, not perfectly clear, but you can still see movement and action going on. 
and we could see that the two men had been lined up against the wall. And up that wall grew um, a um, peach tree, and the, there were beautiful, big, ripe peaches. And peaches ripen around July, August in Europe. And, you know, they were growing on espalier against the wall. On espalier is a horticultural term. It means growing like ivy against the wall to be exposed, maximum exposure to the sun. And so um, from the peaches, I was able to calculate that I'd been at the farm for 18 months. Um, we were in, in the haystack. Catherine was holding me between her legs, very, very tight, with my mouth blocked with her hand. And I, I think I was so stunned that I wouldn't even have screamed. The two men got lined up against the wall and um, all of a sudden we heard a gunshot. I didn't know what wow. it was at the time, but whether somebody was trigger happy, whether somebody gave the order to shoot, whether somebody tried to escape, we'll never know. But all I know is that, you know, we were absolutely terrified and, you know, sitting there, I'm sure Catherine would have been as afraid as I was. And um, then there was more activity going on. And then some soldiers came out and picked up farm implements. Uh, and one came to our haystack and started digging through the straw. And um, a miracle happened. Um, I was hit by the tines of one pitchfork in my neck. Oh, my. And I didn't scream. I, I couldn't. Catherine was holding me so tight. But the miracle that happened was that the soldier was pushing and pulling on the pitchfork and the hay was cleaning the blood of the tines. So he wasn't aware that he had actually hit a human being that was bleeding inside the haystack. Oh, gosh. And they weren't obviously looking for a little Jewish girl that was hiding in the haystack. They were looking for ammunition, guns, and because they would have felt the metal. So eventually they got back into the truck and... Uh, there was an eerie silence. The men had gone. Now, I presume they weren't killed because if they'd been killed, they would have left their bodies there to be buried. Um, they would have taken them away for either more interrogation or whatever, but there was some blood in the courtyard. And I remember seeing the blood, but I was more concerned of, my my neck which was bleeding and I've still got the scar on my neck. I've had it all my life. Oh gosh. Uh, but you can't see it from where you are. Sorry. And uh um kids used to laugh at me when I was young because my hair was shaved very short and everybody could see and it looked like I was um dirty. My neck was dirty, you know, how go how do you explain to kids who are laughing and calling you dirty Jewess 
that these are scars that were done by a pitchfork in my neck. And how Katrine treated me afterwards is a miracle in itself, but it's still also a mystery because there were no antibiotics. She couldn't take me to a doctor. I really don't know what she did to stop any infection, to close up the, the, the gap. I, I, I really don't remember. All I know is that I've still got the scar, but I'm very thankful that, that it's there because otherwise if they'd have found me, they, they would have killed me on the spot, I would think. And um, the two women were left on their own to look after the farm, which they found much too onerous and too, too difficult. And so I was sent back to Brussels. How did I get back to Brussels? I don't know. I mean, you know, I was four years old by that stage or thereabouts. I don't know whether, no, I was more than four, five, over five years old. And um, I just, I just don't remember whether we traveled by train, whether Catherine and the Marie took me back to Brussels whether my father came to get me. I, I just don't remember the journey back. And at that stage, an organization, the Comité de Défense des Juifs had been formed. Um, and they were looking after orphan children or children that, Jewish children, you know, trying to protect them and putting them in safe houses. And the safe houses were not really always safe because the neighbor would denounce a lot of people. So um, they used to rotate the children from safe house to safe house. And so children could have got lost in the system. And Madame Joffie was one of the ones that started this movement. And André Guelen was one of the people that kept exercise books with records in, um, uh, oh, what's the word? You know, it it was hidden, it wasn't in letters, it was in, uh, um, I don't know what the word is, sorry. Um, she kept books, but exercise books, people wouldn't be able to read them without the key in which she put the real name because a lot of children had to change their name. My maiden name was Kammermann, which is a German-Dutch name, so I didn't have to change my name, and Francine is a French name, so I never had to change. But if your name was um, Naomi Cohen or Esther Levy, of course you'd have to change your name to try and make it uh, less Jewish. So the, these exercise book kept records of all the, the children, who the parents were, who the next of kin were, in case they couldn't find the parents after the war, uh, where they were hidden, uh, under what name. And these, these records are now kept, a lot of these exercise books are kept in Yad Vashem in the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem. And uh, I found my name in one of them, which was absolutely 
heartbreaking because I, I had been identified in 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 the book that's kept in Yad Vashem. It it was very very touching to to see it there. Anyway, Andre Gulen risked her life right through. And when they had the conference for the um, the uh, first Holocaust children survivors in Belgium um, many years ago, I don't remember in what year, um, Andre Gulen was there and people would rush to, to go and thank her and, you know, because she was instrumental in, in saving so many hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of children. And uh, she passed away a few years ago. She was over a hundred years old. <coughs> but, uh, excuse me, um, in, um, so I was placed in, in the so-called safe houses. At that stage, I didn't possess anything anymore. When I went to the farm in Sand, I had two little dolls. One had no legs and one had no arms. And they were mine. They were my best possession. And I had the clothes that I was in. They fitted me. My shoes fitted me. But as I grew, of course, none of my clothes fitted. And so in the safe houses, the younger children took the clothes of the older ones. The older ones got clothes from adults and so on. Shoes was a very hard thing to come by because uh, all our feet grew. And uh, in Belgium, of course, they use a lot of clogs as they do in Holland. So clogs was... I remember when I was in the farm, Catherine painted some little flowers and wrote my name on the clogs, um, my little clogs that I used to live outside the, the door when I used to go inside. So I did have clogs, but when I was in the safe house, it was a completely different story. First of all, our clothes were riddled with lies. Um, and... When somebody came to get you to change you from one safe house to another safe house, you didn't ask questions, you didn't see who they were, who they weren't. They were usually female, young female. And you walked out with them. You grabbed the first coat that you could see, which meant that nothing that you that you had was yours. Nothing was yours, your possession, your toy, your clothes, your nothing. It was all from somebody else. Also, in the safe houses, cleanliness was not a priority. First of all, if they'd started washing children's clothes and hang them outside, of course the neighbours would have noticed and denounced them. For a loaf of bread, people would denounce anybody. So we, we didn't get our clothes washed. We didn't have our cells to wash. I remember very well being taught to dip my finger in water and then dip it in the sand and then rub my teeth because it would act as an abrasive and clean the tart, the, the growth on the teeth. So you can imagine the cavities and the quality of the teeth after the war. But um, somehow we, we managed to survive, most of us. 
some were not as lucky when they had raids, unfortunately, being at the wrong place at the wrong time. It was just a matter of luck. And also, at one stage, it was getting towards the end of the war. Um, the V1s and V2s, which were unmanned uh, rockets, were coming over Belgium, destined for London. But of course, the Nazis hadn't perfected yet the way to, to London, and a lot of them fell on Belgium of these unmanned rockets and we could hear them they made a ghastly sound and they landed anywhere because they didn't know you know uh, they didn't know yet at that stage where to make them land and where not so they, they could fall on a church on a school on a road on a house it wasn't it wasn't anything that had been preset i thought i was extremely lucky when my grandfather found me a permanent place, it was about six months before the liberation of Brussels, and my grandfather found me a permanent place. He didn't know that it was only six months until liberation. Nobody knew. We were just hoping. And um, my grandfather found me a um, permanent place with his accountant. And there was Monsieur Masson, Madame Masson and Mademoiselle Masson. Mademoiselle Masson was entertaining the Nazis, the soldiers, ostentatiously saying that it was she was gathering information for the um, for the um, resistance, but she couldn't prove that after the war, so she had a bitter ending. Um, but. I sometimes, you know, she would entertain uh, her soldier friends and I had to jump into a dark cupboard that was creaking and I could not move. Not one single muscle could move because it would have divulged exactly where I was and that would have been the end of all of us. And I was terrified of the dark and not being able to move. You know, normally you might sit quietly in a chair and just don't move. But the minute you are told you cannot move, and I know I've had this experience because I, I sat for a painter once, and the minute they'd say, now we we're starting to paint again, after three minutes your nose is itching, your face is, you feel you, you have to scratch your head. You have to move something. So, of course, I'm there in the dark cupboard and, you know, I can't reveal because the minute I get caught, we all get caught and we get murdered. So it was pretty awful. Also, Mademoiselle Masson had given me a little porcelain coffee set to play with, not given, but given me to play with. And so... That was the only thing that I had to entertain myself. And so one day, um, Mademoiselle, I slept in the same room as Mademoiselle Masson, and she was out, and Monsieur Masson decided to come to bed with me and told me, this is our secret. You don't talk to anybody about this. 
if you tell anybody about this incident, I will march you across the road to the Gestapo and you'll be tortured and then murdered and you'll be dead. Wow. And so, and so I was six years old and Monsieur Masson raped me. Wow. And I was terrified of the Gestapo. I was absolutely terrified and I wasn't going to say anything. But in the morning, when I woke up, if I'd been asleep, I don't know. But in the morning, I noticed that my sheets were dirty. And so I, I was very, very afraid of the Gestapo. But I was more afraid of Madame Masson because she was very stern and and reluctantly had let me come in to her place, to her home. And so in the morning, I thought she's going to kill me for having made a mess of the sheets. So being very innocent, as I, I didn't realize what had happened to me. And I said to Madame Masson, I didn't make this mess in my bed, your husband did. And she just looked at me, blew up like a frog. She expanded. She was a little woman, and yet she expanded. She towered over me, and she said, you dirty, lying Jewess, where did you get this? How did you've got a filthy mind? How could you talk this and... and she went on and on and on, and she said, out you go. And she took a box and started throwing my few clothes or whatever he had, very few belonging. And I had been playing with the little tea set of her daughter, and she's, it was porcelain, and she threw it in the box. Several pieces got broken. She put me outside the door and the box outside the door. And I was hungry. I needed desperately to go to the bathroom. I was too afraid to cry because I thought if a passerby asked me, you know, why are you crying, little girl? And then, you know, and I'm a little Jewish girl that was thrown out and straight to the Gestapo. So uh, I stayed in a doorway with the box and I didn't know what was happening. I prayed. I, and Many, many hours later, my brother came with a bicycle. He had been delivering coupons, illegal coupons that were printed in the in the underground printery, you know, to people so that they could go out and buy food when they had money. And so my brother only got the message probably through my grandfather to come and pick me up. And he took me to my grandfather's house. By that stage, I hadn't seen my mother since 1942. This was in 1944. And I've got to add here that the Massons, although he did an unspeakable, horrible thing to me, um, saved my life by hiding me. Wow. So I, I feel I have a debt of gratitude to the Massons because because they hid me and the the price i had to pay was the price um so my brother came to get me and took me to my grandfather's house 
My grandfather's house had been put into the name of a Gentile gentleman because Jews were not allowed to own property. And so throughout the war, one of us lived there or another one lived there. 66 Rue de la Seine, 66 Rue in the street of the Seine. You know, we've got in Brussels a river called Seine, S-E-I-N-N-E, not like in France, the Seine, which is S-E-N-N-E. So it sounds the same, but it's much different. The Seine in France is majestic. The Seine in Belgium is a very tiny little river. And so Rue de la Seine must have been the street that was built on top of this little little river. And that, that was the house that my grandfather had had to sell to a Gentile. And my brother took me there. I didn't see my mother. My mother, I didn't know where she was at that stage. My, my brother had been thrown out of the seminary because one of our my mother's cousin went and knocked at the door of the seminary and and they threw my brother out because he could have put everybody at risk from being discovered and they were hiding some Jewish boys. You know, the Nazis would come into the seminary at all hours of the day and night and ask the boys to take off their trousers and they could see those that were circumcised were taken away. And... Um, so they had quite a few raids afterwards, my brother found out, but he was let loose virtually. He didn't know where the parents were living and they thought he was safe in the seminary. Meanwhile, he was finding um, uh, where to sleep in dogs' kennels, trying to steal dogs' food, living off... Um, food in bins when he could find any. He was living from eating grass in gardens, flowers, whatever he could get. Had a horrible, very, very terrible time. And um, because he didn't know where any of the family was. Just before the liberation, my father was arrested. Um, he was denounced by a guy called Jack de Moussa. The Musa means the denouncer. This man, a Jewish man, used to ride with the Nazis in an open car, um, a jeep, and he'd point out. It takes very often, you know, they say, we always believe that we can recognize other Jewish people, but I think it's a fallacy. But anyway, this man was accompanying the, he knew a lot of Jewish people and he thought he was going to save himself. So he denounced a lot of people. And, but finally he was also on the train to Auschwitz where I have been told he was ripped to pieces. Wow. So he didn't arrive to Auschwitz to lie. Meanwhile, my dad was on the very, very, very last train to Auschwitz. And this is something that is killing me, that he he managed to stay alive throughout this ordeal, through this war, to, to, through everything. All he had to do was hide for another couple of weeks, few weeks. 
He knew the liberation had happened because that happened on the 6th of June when the the Allies uh, came across from Normandy uh, to Normandy. Mm-hmm. And so he knew the Allies would be there soon. And he went out to get some food, I think. Also, my mother said. And um, uh, he was on the last train to Auschwitz and went straight to the gas chambers. It was, they didn't need labor anymore at that stage. When, when I was reunited with my mother after the liberation, she decided, she was a young woman, she had her own reason. At the time, I didn't understand that You know, she'd been left a young widow. She'd suffered through terrible hardship. And she didn't want the encumbrance of young children. My brother and I, damaged children, horrible children, intractable, awful children. And so my brother was left to roam the street and I um, I, uh, was put in foster homes. Uh, foster homes in where I live in Australia are government supervised. They are um, organized and so on. Whereas in Europe at that time, foster homes were just a couple of old people who'd like to supplement their pension or their income by taking in a child. So again, I was left with old people, not mixing with children. I my mother completely forgot about me about when she had to pay for my board and left me in the in the foster homes. In fact, by the time I was I was changing foster homes on a regular basis because I was so difficult that and in Belgium there's an organization, a government organization called La Police des étrangers, meaning police just for foreigners. And wow. foreigners had to register when they arrived. They had to get identification. They had to, if they moved from one suburb to another, they had to deregister from one suburb to re-register in the next suburb where they were moving to. So they, they could always be kept track track of. They also had to give details of their, their uh, businesses, how they were earning their money, uh, where they were working, all their information was kept in this these documents. For me, it was a, a treasure trove when I was writing my book, because there I got my dossier, and it even it showed that I was accepted into hospital as an indigent, because of, obviously they had no money for me when I had um, peritonitis. And there are all the details, which house I came from and which house I went to after the after the operation. Um, there are all these weird and wonderful details, all the homes that I lived at. So I, I didn't live with my mother. And um, my mother, when I was 11, my mother remarried and... Um, subsequently had a child and when she had the child she made me come back to live with them to take care of the child I was 11 years old and so became the slave to my family 
plus that little girl that I virtually brought up on my own. My mother and stepfather used to go to Madeira for the holidays and leave me in charge for over a month with a little baby. My brother had been disposed of. By the time my brother in 1952 came to Australia, he was sent with hardly a few dollars in his pocket. And um, before that, he had done military service. So I hardly know my brother because I've hardly lived under the same room, roof as him. So, but um, that's a, a different story. And so uh, I only went to live with my mother when I was 11 years old and didn't have, apart from the master-servant relationship, we didn't have any, any other proper relationship. Before that, every time I got thrown out by the, by the foster carers who were looking after me, I used to spend time with my grandparents they, until my mother could find another place where I could stay, I'd move back to my grandparents, I'd move. So I must have gone to many, many schools. But at the beginning, when I was eight years old, one of the foster carers said to my mother, shouldn't this child go to school? So I started school when I was eight. And of course, the kids were laughing at me because I didn't have nice clothes. I didn't have parents who came and dropped me off and picked me up and looked after me. And and I was Jewish, one of two Jewish girls in the whole school. Oh, my. Yes. And of course, you know, we'd spend times at playtime being surrounded by the kids jumping around saying, you killed Christ, you killed Christ. Well, of course, I'd say, no, I don't know Christ. And, you know, I didn't kill him. And it was it was pretty awful. And also I was, I couldn't read or write. So they put me in uh, baby classes, in the kindergarten classes. Whereas at eight, I should have been in third year. Wow. So I spent four years of schooling, and at 12, my mother allowed me to take a typing shorthand course for six months at a place called École Fag. I don't think it exists anymore. And I learned typing and shorthand, which I forgot almost immediately, mm. and um, became a typist in a typist, typing pool. So as well as doing all the work at home, I was earning money, giving my pay packet to my mother, and um, I didn't revolt. People are asking me very often, why didn't you do something about it? Because I didn't know any better, because I really didn't know any better. And so when I turned 20 and my grandmother was left a widow. My grandmother, maternal grandmother, grandfather survived the war. All my father's family, apart from a brother, um, were also murdered. So I lost an enormous amount. My brother once sat down and calculated there would have been 74 people that we know of that we can identify by name. And how about all the children and cousins and second cousins impossible to to tally them 
people that were murdered during the war. We would have had a beautiful large family all over the world. But my grandma, my grandfather died. My grandmother wanted to go to Australia to see her family who had migrated to Australia before the war. And so who else to send to Australia to look after the grandma but me? So my mother bought a one-way ticket, put me on the plane, on a, on a boat rather, from Southampton to Australia. And I was so ignorant, so stupid, so idiotic, so dumb. It never occurred to me to walk into a library, get a book about Australia, find out something about the country I was going to, Find out Sydney, what, what is it? Is it a town? Is it the desert? Is it uh, waterlogged? Is it on the mountain? I knew nothing, nothing. I was too ignorant. The mind boggles at the, the ignorance, the, the, the depth of ignorance, that it never occurred to me to go and find out you're going the other side of the world. You're leaving everything that you have ever known. And, you know, with uh, no return ticket and and the foreign language, I didn't speak English. Um, so, of course, um, arriving in Australia on the morning of the day we arrived in Sydney, the captain said the day before, he said, tomorrow morning at five o'clock, we go through the heads and you can come on deck and you'll see the heads. And of course, the whole ship was on deck at five o'clock in the morning. And we saw this magnificent place. Uh, it was so beautiful. There were no high rises, there were beautiful little houses. There were boats on the harbor. And it, it was just like we've landed in paradise. This is, this is the most beautiful place in the world. And you know something, this happened over 60 years ago and I still think the same. I'm grateful and I'm, I'm so grateful that I landed in Australia. So very grateful that I was able to spend all these years here, raise a family. What does your book teach us about intergenerational trauma and vicarious trauma? Well, you know, intergenerational is completely... Um, non-subjective it just gets passed and it you know we don't realize it and the trauma that my mother suffered was revisited upon me and I'm sure I revisited it upon my children and my grandchildren so the, I don't know whether the book does concentrate on on the passing of the trauma from one generation to another it and I mainly wrote my book with my main objective was that children went to their deaths without a voice. And all of them said, many of them said, people as they were taken away were saying, tell them, tell the world, tell the world about this injustice. You must tell the world. Now, after the war, the first thing we were told was you don't speak about it. So we, we were embarrassed. 
something had happened to us, but we were embarrassed that it had happened to us. And so none of us spoke. You know, I all the Jewish kids and people that I miss, mixed with in Belgium, not many, but there were a few, they, we never ever talked about the war, never mentioned anything. Do you have a father? Do you have a mother? Most of us did had lost so many people, but we never talked about it. We were ashamed of what happened. So most survivors of the Holocaust did not speak for at least 30, 40 years after the event. And in the 1980s, people started writing PhDs and, and master's research about trauma of the Holocaust survivor, the children survivor, child survivors. And of course, they started interviewing the children who were not children anymore at that stage. And all of a sudden, we were in a safe environment and it burst out of us because, you know, all the, the memories had been put so deep that we became ingrained and we didn't speak about them. And they came to the surface. And the other thing was, we had a voice. We could talk. But one and a half million or thereabouts children were murdered for no other reason than the fact that they were Jewish. And they went to their death without being able to, to have a voice, without saying anything. Their voices were extinguished. So that was the purpose of writing my book, to give voice, not speaking on their behalf, because that would be very presumptuous, but to, um, to give them a voice so that people know the trauma that we have all endured. How did the death of your father impact you? How did you cope and respond during your upbringing? Well, I never believed that he had been murdered, actually. It, he, I never had a death certificate. The death certificate or the replacement certificate said that he, this, he was taken and died, perhaps presumed dead, presumed uh, more. So never actually dead in an unknown area place. We know it was Auschwitz, but it, that's what the certificate that it says is death certificates says presumed death in, in an undetermined place. So I, as a child, always thought that one day he was going to come back. He's suffering from amnesia or he was taken by the Russians and sent to Siberia and he can't escape, he's in the gulag somewhere. I mean, I had all sorts of scenarios. I even had a scenario when he came and saw my stepfather and my mother there, and they had a fight. And by the way, I hated my stepfather with a vengeance. Every single night before I went to sleep, I would make a prayer. I would pray and say, please God, let Boris died by the morning, be dead. And you know, nobody answered my prayer. He was mm. always alive in the morning. And so, you know, prayers have lost any shine for me. I don't know, prayers don't, don't get answered. What was your relationship like with your mother? Can you describe it in greater detail? Well, I never bonded with my mother. 
And in all the years, all I wanted her to say was just once, once only, I love you. And you know, I never, ever heard her say, I love you. I was, even when she had Alzheimer's, when she had dementia in, in, in the end of, at the end of her life, and I would go there and I'd say, who am I? What's my name? Who's that? And she'd say, the nurse. And I'd say, can you say I love you? And she'd smile and she said, no. Even with dementia, she couldn't bring herself to say I love you. So she didn't want me. She, she didn't want my brother. She wanted her new life. And um, so I never had a relationship with my mother. She never gave me a birthday never gave me a birthday party, never gave me a birthday present. Um, when I was taken to hospital and had uh, my uh, emergency appendix peritonitis operation, she came three days later and brought me a book called Little Lord Fauntleroy, which I treasured for years and years and years. It's the only new thing that she ever bought me apart from a one dress. Everything else was always the leftover clothes from my cousin in London or people had donated from the joint. Um, but I got two things from my mother, a dress when I was 17, I think, to go to somebody's wedding, a stupid dress that she paid a fortune for which I, I wore once because, you know, I wasn't going to a wedding every day. And that one book, Little Lord Fauntleroy. What was it like for you being left-handed? How was it perceived by your family, friends, peers, and teachers? In your perspectives, how have attitudes toward left-handedness changed and evolved in society in your lifetime? What is your perspective on attitudes toward left-handedness today? Today, it's amazing. I have a carer who's left-handed, and she she comes and brings her own can opener because she can't use a right-hand one. But mm. there's all these tools and implements now available. But when I was a child, Belgium was, I, I conservatively say, 95% Catholic. And, you know, when you got lost, you go went to ask a priest for help. And the nuns and the priests were just the highest people of society as far as children were concerned, the safe people to go to in an emergency if you, if you needed help. And so Belgium was a, a very observant Catholic country. It's no longer so, but it was in in the 19, late 1940s and 50s. And so the nuns at school were mostly, the, a lot of the teachers were nuns, although it wasn't, you know, even state schools had nuns because, I don't know, the, the people of uh, teaching age might have been killed during the war or, gone into other profession. I'm not sure why we had nuns in the public school because I was in the public sector. But uh, in Latin, which is how the service work, the Catholic service were conducted in those days, now it's been finished, but in those days, all the religious service were carried out in Latin. And hmm. left is sinistra, 
And of course, from sinister comes sinister. And so mm -hmm. people who had left hands or left tendency were bad. They were sinister. You must beat that out of them. So I had, as soon as I arrived at school and I started picking up a left a pencil with my left hand, I used to get beaten. I, I, my fingers were always black and blue with bruises because they were beaten. And then they, they discovered that they could tie my hand behind my back. And this was done every single day when I arrived in school. You can imagine what that did to my shoulder and what it did to my muscles of that hand that were paralyzed virtually the whole day. They weren't, I couldn't use them. And of course, writing with my right hand became torture. So I had a pretty awful handwriting. I wasn't able to write with my left hand and hardly able to write with my right hand. I don't know, still to this day, I don't know the difference between my right and my left. And so I usually go that way or that way. But I, I if you ask me that way, is it left or right? I can't. I can't tell you. I just know that you've got to turn the card that way. That's about it. I, I just cannot understand the, the feeling of right and left. And I have now Parkinson's and I see a neurologist. And I was idly asking a question to him about this forcefully uh, having to use the right side, right hand rather than the left hand. And he said that causes a lot of damage to the brain because the left brain uses controls the right side and vice versa. So, you know, they created all this damage for me. Today, left is accepted everywhere. Everybody can, can please themselves, use right hand or use left hand. You can get any implement for the left handers. And... It's lucky I just was born 20, 30 years too early. What information does your book convey about the Gorse camp? You alluded to it at the beginning of our dialogue. Can you contextualize it for our listeners who might not be familiar? How well, is it presented in your book? Well, I, I you know, Gorse was, was in an internment camp. And people believed that, you know, it was only a temporary thing. But eventually, unfortunately, the conditions I, I have since read, I didn't know, most people didn't know at the time, but the conditions were horrendous. They had no sanitary facility, no food, no water, no, no protection from the weather. Um, and a high percentage, most people in Gilles were sent to Auschwitz and very few survived. So it was uh, a wrong decision to make that as against going back to where you came from. Can you tell us about Zeda and Buba? What events in history did they live through? How were their psychologies formed as a result of trauma that they lived through? What kinds of parents were they to your mother? What kinds of grandparents were they like to you? Oh, dear. 
I always dreamt of having a nice grandmother, you know, like you see in the pictures with a with a cat on her lap and knitting and kissing and having cookies. My grandmother was a very bitter, harsh woman, and she divided everybody rather than was kind to anybody. And I'm sure my mother suffered extreme trauma with my grandparents. My grandfather on the, was not like that. He wasn't like Boba. Zayda had affairs, and I've seen him one a few times with women that weren't my grandmother after the war, and I think he was also drinking quite a lot. And, you know, in as a grown-up, I can understand that he had a, a pretty awful life with her. And the thing is, it was an arranged marriage. My grandmother was a little girl. She was 17, 16 or 17 when they got married. They didn't know each other. It was all done through a matchmaker, Chatron, they called them, who was traveling from one place to another. So it would have been, you know, there was no no love. It It was just an arranged marriage and I never saw any affection between my grandfather and my grandmother. I never saw a smile. I never saw empathy, not for each other, not for my mother, not for any of us. We were the only of their grandchildren who were in Belgium. You know, Roslyn would come from London to visit and Roslyn was the be-all and end-all of everything. They couldn't stop doing things for Roslyn and my grandmother would go out of her way because Roslyn was very bright and Roslyn was intelligent and Roslyn went to university and Roslyn did this and Roslyn did that. And I envied Roslyn and I thought they treated me worse than a dog. But no, my grandparents were mistreated my mother and my mother revisited it upon me. So I I didn't cry when my mother died because it was like a stranger, not, not, you know, when I hear a song called the Yiddish Mama, I just think to myself now, this is, this is a lie. This is not, my mother had no maternal instinct, and yet she did. She loved my little sister, or to a point. She's, I, she didn't do anything for her. I had to look after her. But she, when she passed away, she left her, the majority of her, her income and her, her possessions to my sister. My brother got nothing, and I got a pittance. So she wasn't considering herself our mother. So um, that's the relationship with Bubba. But Bubba and Zayda were, who came, my grandmother came to Australia with me on the ship. And everywhere she went, to London, to Australia when she arrived, she left a piece of jewelry. My auntie Faye got enormous big diamonds one went to Roslyn, one went to Joy, my other cousin in England. 
and she came to Australia. Everybody got a big piece of jewellery. And when she died, my aunt had the cheek to give me earrings out of which the diamond had been taken out and saying to me, so these were earrings out of the, 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 the frame they'd taken out the diamonds. And she said, you might want these as a souvenir of Bubba. And I've kept them. And I, you know, one should says one shouldn't hate, but I have absolutely no love for that woman. Nothing. No feelings. Nothing. So the less spoken about, the better. She didn't consider herself my grandmother. What was it like for you to read about Anne Frank? What similarities and differences do you perceive between your experience and hers? Well, Anne Frank was slightly older than me, and she was able to express herself very beautifully. And so, you know, her memories, her diary is so fresh because it's it's written by a young girl exactly as the events happened. I started writing in retrospect 40, 50, 60 years after the event. And so my memories are blurred. The difference also with Anne Frank is the fact that she was with her family. She was nurtured until the end. She always had somebody who loved her. her she had her whole family loving her, father, her mother, her sister, the, the extended family, the friends, everybody was close. Where even when she was in the in the concentration camp, she had her sister with her. You know, whereas I spend the war on my own, pretty much on my own, without any support, any love, any affection. And I can tell you, it's extremely hard because you have to dig so deep to find. I have masses of love and affection for my grandchildren, but I could never show it to my own children. I adore them, but I could never show them love because I hadn't been taught. I did not know. I thought my life was like everybody else's life. I didn't realize that people were living in a warm, understanding, friendly environment. So when I speak to children, sometimes I say, you've read the book about Anne Frank. Well, I was a little girl in hiding, just like Anne Frank, but not quite like her because we were in different circumstances. And sometimes she died and I envy her. I envy her all the love and the care and the attention and and her wonderful gift that she had of being able to put pen to paper and retell her day-to-day -day story, that's also something that I am envious of. Can you describe your relationships with your siblings and their in-laws? And my in-laws? Yes. Well, I've got hardly any relationship with my brother. My brother is 91. He lives in a town north of Sydney, the north of New South Wales called Tamworth, where his son is a medical doctor, a rural doctor. And, um, and it's quite far away. It's 
five or six sales by car. And I'm planning on going to go and see him because he's not getting any younger and I'd love to see him. But I did spend some time with him a couple of a year ago, I think. And um he made me very welcome with his wife and they couldn't do enough for me. And although I know he is the closest thing to me in the world, he's made of exactly the same DNA and everything that you know, we we we're flesh and blood exactly the same. And he should be the closest person in my life. I have no warm feeling. Uh, yes, I have warm feeling. I can't explain it. It's just we don't understand each other. We have never lived together. We only occasionally once or twice or a few days here or there. So it's like being with a stranger. Whereas my little sister, I brought her up and she considers me more like her mother whenever she needs advice and things. But for some reason or other, we're not on the same plan, plane intellectually. And um, I, I can't understand that she hasn't read my book. Um, she reads an enormous amount of books. She's a, an avid reader, but she has refused to read my book. I am featured in several exhibitions at the Sydney Jewish Museum, and she's never been to, to see or to listen. And I don't know what she's afraid of because all this at the museum happened before she was even born. So I think she must be afraid of something or something that's guilty about. I can't explain it. I don't know what it is. But so that's the relation with my siblings. What was the second half? The kid? My in-laws. Yes. Um, my mother-in-law and father-in-law. Um, my father-in-law was a foreboding image. And, you know, he was kind in a certain way, in an abrupt way, and I was terrified, frightened of him, very frightened. But um, I got into the habit as I got married to and have children to go and see my mother-in-law every single Sunday afternoon. I would dress up my children and I would go there. And when I went to see my mother, my my mother would open the door and say, where have you been? Why haven't I seen you for days? You've got time to gallivant and run around with your friends. You've got time to go to the movies. You've got time for everything. You never come to see me. You know, it got to a point when I was, I'm sorry, when I was dreading for my mother to, to go to my mother. Whereas I'd go to my mother-in-law and my mother-in-law would open the door with a smile from ear to ear welcome the children, give them cookies and say to me, is your husband coming today? So she considered me her daughter. In fact, when she passed away, her will was divided amongst her three daughters and me. And I got my husband's share. So my mother-in-law loved me like a daughter and she treated me like a daughter. And... I loved her in return. Who is Mademoiselle Simonis? 
Can you contextualize her for us? Mademoiselle Simonis. Mademoiselle Simonis was the headmistress of the school that I was going to, the primary school. She was an unmarried lady, lived with her mother in a little cottage behind the school. And my mother had put it into her head that the highest person that she knew, my mother had not finished primary school, you know, she was not very, she wasn't educated. And so to her, in that order, we had a doctor and the doctor was the highest person in her estimation. And um, I, the next person after that was the, uh, the headmistress of the school. So my mother would kowtow actually to the headmistress when she, and she was be called on a regular basis because I was, as I said before, I was intractable and very badly behaved. So my mother developed some sort of a relationship with the headmistress and used to consider it a great honor when the headmistress would accept her invitation to come to dinner at our place. And so I started resent I started resenting it and there was a, a silver knife, fish knife that had come out of the the handle of the the blade had come out of the handle and that one was not to be used. And of course I'd I'd put it when I set the table for Mademoiselle Simonis to have. And and so she'd be embarrassed. She'd try and cut something and the blade would come off and she'd be so, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And I'd be, you know. So that was my relationship with Mademoiselle Simonis. But then when I came to Australia and started getting a bit of an education and working at the embassy and being appointed um, chancelier, which is really only giving out passports and visas and doing book, paperwork. It was not a not honorific title of any kind, but it sounded good. I just couldn't resist gloating to her and sending her a letter. Dear Mademoiselle Simonis, uh, you haven't heard from me for many years and you remember me, blah, 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 blah. And guess what? You know, you made me repeat. Oh, I repeated fourth class. So my four years of education were one, two, and, and repeat of three. I never actually got to fourth class. But have no fear. When I came to Australia, eventually I did the HSC, which is the equivalent of the baccalaureate. And I got to university. I got a, a bachelor's degree. And I got a master's degree. Um, I've got a double major. So, but it was too late to gloat to Mademoiselle Simonis. She already went to a better world. So I had nobody to gloat to. But my degrees are hanging on my wall and I get a lot of satisfaction for the, for, from them because I always thought that I was an imbecile and a dumb and uh, I would never achieve anything. I felt inferior to everybody who had been to university and finished high school. And 
I managed to get two university degrees. So I'm very proud of them. Can you tell us about Auntie Betty, Auntie Rose, and Uncle Max? What were their personality attributes and character traits? Well, Auntie Betty took me in. Auntie Betty was the eldest, and she took me in, into her home. But they had a very tiny little cottage with three bedrooms. And one bedroom had a train set. The whole occupied the whole floor. And my cousin Peter packed up his train set and he said, when I came, I was told that this had been Peter's train room. And I thanked him. He said, no, I'm so happy to have a sister. And never resented me. And I came into a home where people, people cared for me. Not my uncle. My uncle was another story, but... He pretended to like me, let's put it this way. My aunt and my cousin more or less made me, but my auntie made me pay board and I had to do all the dishes at night and clean up. So I still was the family servant to a point, not uh, not called that way, but, you know, when you know that... After dinner, you're going to have to do all the dishes by yourself when everybody goes and watches television or does their own thing. Uh, it's not always a pleasant feeling. But Auntie Betty had a factory and she used to bring by the samples, you know, in Paris and in, they'd go on trips and they'd bring back samples. And I was tiny in those days. And the samples would perfectly fit me. And she sold them to me at the price that she paid. So they were no gift. But at least, you know, they were, I couldn't have afforded to buy them outside. So there are little things like that. And I had a family. I had somebody behind me. I could go somewhere within the community and say, I'm Betty Swigger's niece. Whereas Auntie Rose never invited me into her home. Auntie Rose was a bit stuck up and I really don't know what antagonized her, whether she didn't like my mother, whether it was me personally, whatever it was, she never invited me. I never went into their home. She was married to um, a lawyer I don't think he quite finished law, but, you know, being a lawyer, she thought that she was part of the high society. And Auntie Rosine and Uncle Max were were distant, but they invited me from time to time to their, to their place. And I'm very friendly with their two sons, Gary and Ricky. I see them, I see Gary at the cousin's talk every six months. On Zoom, all the cousins get together. My cousin's from England, my cousin's from Australia. Used to be a cousin in Israel, but she's passed away. So, yes, that's my relationship with the aunts and uncle here. Can you tell us about your uncle, Jacques Cameraman, your father, Israel's brother? What do you I remember of him? I never met him. Okay. I never met him. He was paralyzed I don't know from what he was in the wheelchair the photos that I have 
role of Uncle Jack's in the wheelchair. But I was friendly with his son, Emil, and Emil was always so welcoming. When I went to France, he couldn't do it enough for me. Emil and his wife loved me, and I am still in contact with Emil's daughter in, in Paris. So, but that's slowly dwindling, you know. Uh, the distance is very, it's a cruel thing. Different lives, we just, you know, get in touch at birthdays and and on New Year, New Year cards, and that's it. What was it like for you to read and, and receive Le Petit Prince by Antoine de Saint-Exupéry? You allude to it in the book. Can you share what? What, what Le Petit Prince means to you and meant to well, you? Le Petit Prince, in, in fact, was like, was a fairy tale, you know? And this was, this was what I was dreaming of, having a fairy tale. But the importance of the book itself, it didn't mean as much to me as the fact that it had been a new book. Nobody had read it before me. It wasn't dog earmarked, you know, it was nobody had turned the pages. It was new. It was the first new thing I'd held. And it was like, she gave me a gift. She must love me. She must care for me. She gave me, she went out and bought something new. The, the fact that it was the Petit Prince, it didn't matter so much as the fact that I've treasured that book for so many years and then Helen destroyed it. She got hold of it one day and destroyed it, scribbled all over it, tore the pages and, and my heart cried so much. It had been spoiled, you know? I couldn't stick it together. I didn't want it anymore because it had been valid. In your opinion, how can this book genuinely help someone? What can your experience with trauma teach others? How can your story encourage others? Well, I, I don't like the word resilience. And I, I find it, you know, exaggerated. I mean, how can a little child of four and five and six have resilience? I just happened to have been extremely lucky and I was at the right place at the right time and I survived when millions of others didn't. But the book teaches you about resilience because resilience came in for me after the war when I had to fight against the odds. I had to try and, and rebuild my life and and it was against all the odds. My mother didn't care for me. The person who should have been, my father was gone. My father, whom I kept on thinking any minute is going to walk in the door, he's coming back. He never came back. And it's only quite recently that they gave up the idea that he would ever come back. And my brother and I had a a birthday party for my father when he turned 100. You know, we got together and we we said Kaddish, which is a prayer for the dead. And and then we, we reminisced and he told me stories. Do you know, I don't even know what language my father spoke. I asked the stupidest questions to my brother. 
but I can never fathom how he communicated with my mother, for instance. My mother spoke Yiddish, a smuttering of French and a smuttering of uh, Yiddish. So how did they converse? My father spoke Deutsch, German, high German. My father didn't speak Yiddish. He learned Flemish when he came to Belgium. I really don't know how they communicated. You know, I, it's always, every time I ask my brother, he gives me a different answer. I think he doesn't remember. You know, dad was so clever, he spoke every language or something like that. So my father was the person whom I should have had to protect me and to guide me and to look after me. And I, I didn't have him. Next came my mother. My mother put spikes in the wheels. To, to to stop me from achieving anything. She dragged me out of school at 11. I was chosen to go into Greco-Roman, which is the, the highest level of, of uh, branch that you can study in, 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 in Belgium at that stage. And instead, she, she thought six months of typing and shorthand was enough for me. And schooling was free. I was a war orphan. I could have gone to university for free, everything for free. The government would have paid. But no, my mother needed a slave. And so she put all these spokes in my wheels and didn't let me achieve anything and took away all my self-esteem and my my belief in myself, and I never objected because I thought my mother knows best, mothers know better, and I thought everybody else lived in the same circumstances. I just didn't realize that there were homes with a lot of love and affection and, and hugging and kissing, and it was um, a discovery to find out, you know, the relationship that I have now with my grandchildren, for instance. What is your book's contribution to the history of the Holocaust? I think every book about the Holocaust contributes to the learning. Every little snippet put together. It, it First of all, all the information, if it's, if it's accurately uh, copied or, or resourced, was written photographed, documented by the Nazis themselves. So it's irrefutable. Yet there are so many denies. And so every single book about the Holocaust contributes towards denying the deniers. And unfortunately, there seems to be an increase of deniers and anti-Semitism. And one has to be very careful calling anti-Semitism people that, you know, um, unnecessarily so, but deniers are something that that is about uh, abounding now, you know, and that's what we need to combat. As we bring our dialogue today to a close, can you tell us about what you've been working on or where your attention has been going since completing this book? Well, I went around the world. Uh, where I spoke about my book. My publishers, um, Valentine Mitchell, organized stops in different places where I was able to 
speak to groups and people, signing autographing books, book copies. And so my, my daughter worked out that my book is in many, many universities in America in their library including Harvard and that made that I found I was so chuffed when I when I found out that it had been deemed good enough I didn't place it there it's all thanks to my publishers but you know to have your book in the library of Harvard I don't know if anybody's ever taken it out and read it but it's nice to know that it's part of their uh, availability. So I've gone around the world several times to different places, including back to Belgium, and speaking about my book and, and selling many copies. Um, and um, unfortunately, I have develop Parkinson's, which is a nuisance, and I cannot write and read. I've lost complete, I can read, of course I can read, but I cannot write. I've lost the usage of my hands because I cannot do uh, small movements and can't do buttons up and it's very uh, debilitating and limiting. So, I, apart from educating myself and going to lectures and and giving lectures, that's about all I've done. I haven't published anything, just a few short papers, you know, that occasionally people have asked me for man magazines and and uh, interfaith um, meetings, but nothing of importance. As we end our dialogue today, I'd like to convey my utmost appreciation to you for the thought, effort, and sacrifice you devoted to preparing this book for us, for your generous, erudite, and eloquent answers, and to the blessing of my time with you. Thank you. I'm honored and flattered by all your compliments, undeserved, but I'll take it. I'll take anything. Thank you. Thank you. You are a saintly person. You are the salt of the earth. Thank you. Thank you very much. As we close, I'd like to sign off by saying I am Ari Barbalat, your host today on the New Books Network. Today, I've been lucky and blessed to be in dialogue with Francine Lazarus. She is a child survivor of the Holocaust, and she is the author of the memoir, A Hidden Jewish Child from Belgium, Survival, Scars and Healing published in London by Valentine Mitchell, 2017. Thank you.